You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is the third in a series of lectures on the logic of religion. This third lecture is entitled Hellenism and Christianity. I am Jude Doherty, Dean of the School of Philosophy of the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. I work as a professional philosopher and the thrust of this series of lectures is to examine religion from a philosophical point of view. One does not need to be a philosopher to take a look at religion. As a matter of fact, I am drawing upon the work of many others, historians, sociologists, even psychologists of religion as this series of lectures unfolds. In life, one doesn't need to be a philosopher in order to acquire views about religion, but as in other areas of life, one does need a philosophy if he is to have a consistent, supported, and self-critical outlook. Maturity of vision does not come by accident, but only through effort, that is, the kind of effort which draws, first of all, on first principles of thought and reason, draws upon experience, history, and makes careful inferences. The method that we have taken is based on a basic distinction between natural and revealed religion. The revealed religions that we have in mind are those of Judaism, Christianity, Islam, but before the advent of Christianity in the West, there was a well-developed sense of what it meant to worship. We find this in Greek philosophers such as Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, in the Romans, Cicero, and Seneca, just to mention a few. What I have found as a result of this inquiry, and what I've spoken about in the first two lectures is the legacy that we've inherited from these early systematic thoughts about religion. We have found rather noble conceptions of what it means to worship. We've also looked at the presuppositions of religion, and there are many. It's a very complex thing when we begin to unfold it. First of all, religion begins in the ascent to a set of teachings. These can be formulated in propositions and rendered uh, in a catechism or in a textbook. But they're there, even in primitive religions. There is a body of doctrine that appeals not only to intellect, but also to the will. Religion is not merely an intellectual ascent. There is an affective or an emotional disposition. We hold on to belief in God 
even if things are going wrong for us. And the ancients teach us that. Have confidence that God, in some fashion, will make things right, if not immediately in the long run. As soon as that assent is given, things happen. And not only with one's person, in that one may relate one's activity, an activity designed maybe to placate the vengeance of a god, uh, that vengeance that you think is your due for some malfeasance. There is not only that personal relating, but there is a communal relating. Religion is always a communal affair. It involves a congregation, like-minded people, banding together in some fashion, usually to worship, to offer sacrifice, and to offer prayer. So what we're saying is that religion has a structure. First of all, there is teaching, and that teaching is both speculative and practical. The speculative part has moral implications. And as soon as one receives that, one receives it both with mind and with heart certain actions follow. Places of worship are created. Temples, structures of one kind or another are brought into being where that worship takes place. And depending upon the cultivation, the size of the community, perhaps the wealth of the community, the place of worship, the temple, is constructed accordingly. Some beautiful, some perhaps not so beautiful, but the Great temples of the Mediterranean world are visited annually by tourists from around the world to admire their beauty. Some are reasonably intact, most are ruins, but even the ruins carry something of the import which they once held in the lives of people. So what we're saying is that an ascent to a body of truths leads almost immediately to visible effects, visible structures. The gods are to be approached in an appropriate fashion. So there are rites and rituals created. In Greece, for example, it was the father who decided which gods were to be worshipped. And then the sons were instructed by a temple guardian in the proper means of approaching that particular deity. That's just an example of the care which was taken in paying a homage to the God whose existence was assented to. Teaching has to be perpetuated if the community is to go on, as it were, venerating a particular deity. So education becomes an important part of the religious endeavor, again, a communal endeavor. There was no thought that religion had to do with the providing welfare, but of course, within the Christian period, religion begins to take on a kind of welfare role. Christ taught, for example, that one should care for the orphans, the widows, etc., which meant that religion was given a mandate other than merely the mandate of worship. We also find in the Greco-Roman approach to the gods a kind of refinement, a refinement in teaching about the gods, 
It's not static, it develops over a period of time. There are very many notions that are later to be incorporated into Christian teaching, or let's put it this way, many notions that Christians found invaluable as they began to reflect on the message given to them by Christ. Let me illustrate just a few notions. First of all, the Greeks had a confidence in the intelligibility of nature. Nature is intelligible. Why? Because it's ordered and because it's the product of a divine mind. Everything in nature acts toward an end. That confidence in the intelligibility of nature was coupled with a similar confidence in the ability of a human intellect to ferret out the secrets of nature. One could have science as a result of the power of intellect to uncover natural structures, their tendencies, their meaning, and to utilize those acquired bits of knowledge in the creation of useful instruments, so to speak. Science leads to technology. Other important concepts, of course, presupposed by any religious outlook, is that there is an immaterial order that the order that the senses reports is not the whole order of the cosmos or the world. The world consists in more than the visible. I mean, this has to be the case if one is to subscribe to a notion of God or the gods as separate from matter. There are also intimations of immortality, that what one does in this life may have a bearing on the afterlife because the gods are in a position to know even the secrets of the heart, the inner self, and will eventually judge the individual after death. In philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle, we have the concept of a divine-like maker, a creator he is not, he is a maker in the sense that he organizes material already there, but in accord with intelligence. In Aristotle, we enter a different realm where we have a notion of a first efficient cause, an ultimate final cause. We find the notion of a summum bonum, the highest good, goodness itself. God will be depicted by later commentators on Aristotle as self-thinking intellect. With Aquinas, he becomes self-existent being, the cause of the existence of things, not merely the order of nature. So from antiquity, we find many notions that are going to be exploited by the Christian communities when they get underway. They will draw upon these classic notions of human nature and of man's ultimate destiny they will draw upon them as they spell out the implications of the truths that they received in the teachings of Christ. There are many other truths that were uncovered, as it were, by the ancients. I think it's important to remember that while we're used to progress in the development of knowledge, we identify progress with modern science, if one thinks about 
what we've learned in the last hundred years through the natural sciences, it's just awesome. That knowledge has come about largely as the result of the development of instruments. Instruments such as the microscope, particle accelerators, radio telescopes, they have expanded our knowledge of nature tremendously. But now think about what instruments have been added to our store of technology when it comes to studying human nature, when it comes to talking about the end of life, when it comes to talk about happiness, even when it comes to talking about social and political structure. The ancients were no less intelligent or observant than we. So in looking at what they have had to say about the basic human condition can tell us much, is suggestive. And we certainly learn a great deal from reflection on the writings of the authors that we've mentioned, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle in particular, Cicero, and Seneca. Now, one final illustration from antiquity before we move to Christianity, I think a very noble one. We haven't said anything about the role of prayer in one's life. Interestingly, it comes up in Seneca, where Seneca is talking about favors. Seneca was a contemporary of Christ, but there is no evidence that he was influenced by any Christian teaching. It had not come full force to the Roman intelligentsia, so to speak, at that time. He was born about 4 BC, 1 BC. Dates are uncertain there, but I think we're fairly certain about his death date, which was 65 AD. Now, I offer this as an example of the nobility of ancient teaching about natural religion, what we're calling natural as opposed to revealed religion. And this is now from a book on favors, book four of his treatise on favors. Whoever says that God does not grant favors has closed his ears to the sound of prayer, of vows made in all places, in private and in public, with hands raised to heaven? This would not happen, I tell you. It could not be that nearly all mankind would have joined the lunacy of addressing deities that cannot hear and gods that cannot act, unless we had some knowledge of their favors toward us, of favors sometimes brought to us of their own accord, sometimes granted in answer to a prayer, of favors great and timely that free us from the mighty threats by their coming. He goes on, if you say that nature has bestowed the gifts of earth, you are merely giving God a different name. For what is nature if not God and divine reason pervading the entire world and all of its parts? As often as you will, you may find some different way to address the author of all that we have. You may call him Jupiter, or you may call him supremely good or supremely great, or by some other name. 
His titles can be as many as his services to us. Wherever you turn, you'll find him coming to meet you. Nothing is void of him. He fills his own creation. You waste your time, most ungrateful of mortals, if you say that you owe yourself not to God, but to nature. You cannot have nature without God, nor God without nature. Each is the same as the other, differing only in function. God confers on us the greatest and most important favors without any thought of return. And he has no need for anything to be conferred, nor could we confer anything on him. Doing a favor is, therefore, something to be chosen for its own sake. Although he's talking about God, and I needn't go into it, but it, the implication is there, that we, in accepting a favor, accept it if we do it graciously, have, as it were, paid the debt. That you don't need to repay a favor with a favor. This is certainly evident in the discourse that we have just seen. You honor the giver by receiving the favor graciously. And what Seneca is saying here is the favor of life, the favor of the benevolence of earth by and large, is given to us freely by God, and that we can't do anything for God in return. But of course, he wouldn't rule out the possibility of worship, the need for temples and priests and rite and ritual, but he's not talking about it in this particular treatise. Now, I offer that as an example of insight gained into the human condition and a recognition of the divine. Seneca successfully brings a lot of ideas together that he has inherited from antiquity. The very fact that he's talking about God being approached under different aspects and called different names is an advance. It means that there is a kind of unity there. We don't quite find the unity that we would find in the Hebrew tradition or in the subsequent Christian tradition. But we do find an advance of pulling together of many ideas. We could go on. But I think now we should turn our attention to the difference that the Christian Gospels make now in the ancient world. It begins contemporaneously with Seneca. Christ came and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And his teaching was to make a big difference. His teaching was received in the Christian light when the intellect of the human race had been prepared. All these notions that we have looked at enable the Christian, with the deposit of the faith, to develop the implications of that faith, to show it in all of its rationality, though it was not initially promulgated in a kind of classical fashion. By the beginning of the Christian 
period, there had, I think we've seen, evolved in Greek philosophy a universe imbued with reason, shorn of mystery. Why? Because the universe is regarded as intelligible and its design as discernible in science and philosophy. Although Christianity was not introduced as a body of knowledge in opposition to Greek philosophy, that is, as one doctrine pitted against another, its alternative character soon became apparent. The natural, spontaneous form of Christianity was not written or didactic instruction. The Christian communities were made up of artisans and fishermen and people of small means who attached prime importance to brotherhood and mutual assistance in the expectation of the imminent consummation of the world. Now, I have some doubts that that imminent consummation of the world really pervaded all Christian communities. But from the apostolic age, we begin to have now some writings. They're incidental writings, epistles, relation of episodes from the life of Christ and the Acts of the Apostles. And these were written with the intention of strengthening and propagating the faith, faith in the kingdom of heaven. Reasoned, coherent, doctrinal statements were soon to follow as the Gospels were received by those steeped in Greco-Roman learning, but that happened only after a time. At the same time that the Stoic philosophers of Rome were lecturing to a relatively sophisticated audience. In Galilee, Jesus was instructing uneducated people who knew nothing about the world of Greek science, the Greco-Roman conception of the world, Roman law. These untutored people of Galilee could grasp parables and images more readily than the intricacies of dialectical argumentation. In the teaching of Christ and in that of the apostles, the world, nature, and society are not presented as objects of science, but as inexhaustible reservoirs of images replete with spiritual significance. For example, the lily of the valley, the prodigal son, the lost sheep, and many others whose freshness and popular appeal contrast sharply with the rhetoric and studied eloquence of the Roman world. Christ teaches people how to attain happiness, but not through the development of a stoic or heroic will that treats all external events as objects of indifference, poverty, sorrow, wrongs, injustices, and persecutions are true evils, but evils which, thanks to Christ's redemptive act, will be righted in the kingdom to come. Typical Christian teachings such as joy in the midst of suffering in the expectation of eternal happiness is quite different than the teaching of the Greco 
Roman philosophers. This has a tremendous impact on the intellectual life of the Mediterranean. We have just seen that the teachings of Christ stand in stark contrast to those that we have found in the Greco-Roman philosophers, mainly because the way they are presented is in a non-theoretical or reasoned fashion. A problem that immediately comes up as soon as you begin to reflect. Now, you have on the one side what I regard as a very noble legacy of thought about the human condition and about the nature of worship, the need to worship, and you have some notion of divinity. And then you have Christ with his teaching, the teachings of the apostles. So on the one hand, you can talk about reason, and on the other hand, you can talk about faith. And the relation of faith and reason becomes a problem, not simply for the early Christian, or the intellectual in the Roman world of that time, but it's a problem that remains even today. There is a journal called Faith and Philosophy. Now the problem is this. How are the two to be related? If in your reasoned, that is, if in your philosophical approach to nature and man, if you bring in the truths of faith, that is, truths that are presented as beyond what human reason can in fact achieve, if you take note of them, do you, as it were, destroy the rational character of your thought processes? And then on the side of faith, what happens when you introduce the categories of classical thought into your explanation, into your teaching, based on the Gospels, based on the Scriptures, the Bible. Now, some deny that this is much of a problem, and therefore dismiss it. Now, others, to preserve the purity of the evangelical Christianity, will, in effect, say, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens, or put it the other way, why resort to Athens when we have Jerusalem? And on the other side, to guarantee the independence or the autonomy of thought, some are simply willing to ignore what we call revelation altogether and take no account of that whatsoever. Whatever we learn by reason of revelation is not to enter into our intellectual discussions, so to speak. And there are many scholars who believe that the teachings of Christ, when we superimpose the teachings of the Greco-Roman world, that we end up distorting the teachings of Christ. But on the other hand, there are others who show that to make the most of what in fact has been revealed, to draw out all the implications, to get clear the beliefs one needs, the categories drawn from the ancient world. No matter how we approach it, by any measure, Christianity marks an important revolution in our conception of the universe.
The originality of Christianity can be presented from two related but distinct viewpoints. Those who focus on the search for an internal dialectic in history call attention to the fact that Greek philosophy gives what is essentially an objective representation of things, an image of the universe as an object of the contemplating mind. Aristotle, for example, taught that in knowing, what happens is that we bring our mind in conformity or in contact with a reality independent of the mind that our thinking not only does but should conform to what in fact is there. In Stoicism, on the moral side, the Stoic will insist that the subject has no freedom, that is, no true freedom, if he goes contrary to what is presented on the side of nature. Freedom is achieved in complete adhesion to nature. Without denying this, Christianity presents the specter of truly autonomous subjects, subjects independent of the universe, who contemplate the universe without exhausting themselves completely. There is more to life, as it were, than science and contemplation. Human beings have a life of feeling and of love that can't be translated into objective representation. In short, independent of the speculations of the Greeks concerning the cosmos, Christianity calls attention to the subjective, that is, to the inner self, to the heart, to feeling, to conscience. Furthermore, and this is a second side of this intellectual revolution brought about by Christianity, the cosmos of the Greek takes on new meaning. The Greek world, in a manner of speaking, is a world without history. The Greeks did have alternative views of looking at history, regarding history. The eternal order of history is not affected by time in, let's say, the predominant views, since it's either forever, that is, history is forever identical to itself, forever returning to the same point. This is the cyclical view. On this view, the history of humanity is a history of perpetual return. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The opposite idea is that there can be a world of radical change, of initiative, of invention. And this is a view attributed to Christianity, or Christianity is interpreted as advancing this particular view of human history. And you can see why. Christ comes in time with a specific role. The past does not resemble the future. Before Christianity overturned the cosmos of the Greco-Roman intelligentsia, the idea of historical progress would have been difficult, if not impossible. 
distinctively Christian, this is a point I'm making, is the conception of a world created out of nothing. What we have with the advent of Christianity then is the notion of creation in the sense that God brings everything into being where there was nothing but God before. Now, the Greek world did not achieve that particular notion. Then, too, for the Christian, man has a destiny which is not forced on him from without, but which he makes for himself through his obedience or disobedience to the divine will. Now, there are intimations of that. I think you can find it in some Stoic teaching, but it's not clear. Christianity also teaches a new and foreseeable divine initiative to save man from sin, a ransom obtained through the redemptive act of Christ, the God-man. These doctrines then contribute to a new image of the universe. Adam fell, and with it the entire race, which required the redemptive act of Christ. This is not cyclical, it's not unmarked progress. So we're suggesting that Christianity brought with it a dramatic new concept of the universe. With Christianity, we're no longer prisoners of our fate. Our outcomes depend to a large extent on our own initiative, but in addition to our own initiative, we have the grace of Christ, or the grace of God, and then we also have, and we'll see this, the institution of the church, which is there to serve as a time-transcending aid to human beings, both individually and as members of a community. So man sees, subscribing to the teaching of Christ, man sees before him a possible future that he will create, of course, with the grace of God. It is this trait that impressed the first pagans who concerned themselves seriously with Christianity. Christianity was taken seriously. We may recall a complaint of the philosopher Celsus, a complaint which he lodges against the Christians. And it's a complaint, but it's revealing. It tells us something. In a work entitled True Doctrine, a work written near the end of the second century, he complains that Christians believe in a God who's unchangeable. Since their God takes the initiative and makes new decisions in accord with circumstances, that God is not impassive since he's affected by pity. Christians believe in myths about Christ which are not subject to allegorical interpretation. That's kind of interesting. Celsus realizes that. Now, in the period of the Reductionist Geschichte movement in Germany in the 19th century, we have a movement to interpret everything in an allegorical fashion. And Celsus is saying, Christians actually believe what they say. Uh, they don't mean to be taken in a metaphorical or allegorical sense. If they say, that Christ is God, they really mean it. It's not a metaphor for something else. If they say that the end of life is contemplative union with God, they really mean it. So 
Christians present their teaching as true and as a truth that cannot be reduced to a symbol or to some law of nature expressed in a symbolic fashion. So for a Platonist like Celsus, Christianity has serious intellectual defects. Of course, we have a host of contemporary philosophers who would be, if they knew Celsus, true disciples. So we have pure Christianity, fundamentally independent of Greek philosophical speculation, ushering in an entirely new vision of the universe, a dramatic universe in which man is something other than a prisoner of nature. But things are to change. I said a moment ago that Christ came proclaiming that I am the way, the truth, and the light. What is required is faith. And what faith consists of becomes a topic of consideration, not only by the apostles, but subsequently by the people whom we call the fathers of the church, both Greek and Latin. St. Paul will tell us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And Augustine will say, credo ut intelligam, I believe in order that I might understand. Faith gives us a comprehensive grasp of reality, which we need even for secular understanding, so to speak. Unless you believe, you will not understand. The term faith is frequently translated from uh, of the Hebrew, amen, meaning certainty, loyalty. That Hebrew word also suggests reliability in addition to loyalty and trust. In the Gospels and in the Epistles, the noun faith carries with it, not always, but most of the time, the sense of trust. Now, as the Christian tradition grew, the term faith was also used to refer to the content of Christian belief. So we can talk about Christian faith. He or she possesses the faith, or perhaps does not. Thomas, that is St. Thomas Aquinas, gives us, now here we come back to the kind of language that we would find in Aristotle. Faith is the act of the intellect assenting to a divine truth because of a movement of the will, which in turn is moved by the grace of God. We'll be talking about St. Thomas a bit later, but there are a couple of things there. We've already alluded to them because we find this structure even within antiquity. An act of the intellect intellect assenting to something that is proposed as true. And Thomas will add, as a result of the grace of God, so to speak, the will is moved by God himself. Later, and we will discuss, 
both Luther and Calvin and their attitude toward faith, but we can at this point indicate that Luther, rather than coming down on the intellectual side of faith, emphasized the non-intellectual aspect. Trust for Luther is the most important aspect. And then Calvin will speak of faith as a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of a freely given promise in Christ, a promise that is both revealed to our minds and sealed in our hearts through a gift of the Holy Spirit. But all of these early and subsequent discussions of faith show two aspects. First, one is trust, that's a response, and the other is knowledge, and that gives us a specific content. So faith at once symbolizes a kind of trust upon the part of a believer and the acquisition of some knowledge that he would not possess otherwise. Perhaps the modern word certainty covers both aspects. My tactic from here on out is to look at a representative number of the early fathers as they grapple with this problem of faith and reason. And we can't discuss all of them by any means, but some that we can call attention to. And my representative thinkers will consist of Justin Mortar, who lived somewhere between the years 100 and 165 AD. I'm giving the years because it indicates kind of a development, and I'll repeat this as we look at the doctrines of these representative thinkers. Athenagoras, who died about 180. Then Clement of Alexandria, who was born about 150, died about 215. We'll talk about Origen, who is in the same time framework. Tertullian, who comes a bit later, dies in 240. And then finally, the great St. Augustine, whose dates are 354 to 430. Our point is that faith brings man to a higher idea of God and perhaps a more perfect understanding of rules regarding human conduct. Though we find very noble ethical outlooks in antiquity, in the teachings of Aristotle, certainly the Nicomachean ethics is generation after generation of students discovers is amazingly relevant to the contemporary scene. And we find very high-minded teaching in both Cicero and Seneca, just to single out two. When Justin Martyr, second century now, he flourished about 130 AD, about 100 years after the death of Christ, he comes to the faith, and we're using it as a noun, content, rather than simply trust. He comes to the faith with a knowledge of the works of Plato. He had read the Apology and the Crito. He read the Phaedrus and the Phaedo. As a matter of fact, it's his reading of Plato that has led him to Christianity. 
The rational bequeathed by the Greeks stands in need of revelation. It's more or less a prelude. So here we find a philosopher finding in Christianity a philosophical satisfaction which he had been unable to find in Greek philosophy. He declared Plato to be superior to the Stoics in knowledge of God, but inferior to them in ethics. Each philosopher, and this is kind of a tribute, each philosopher seeing a portion of the divine word that is related to him gives expression to thoughts of extraordinary beauty. And we suggested earlier that if you formed a collage of many of these teaching and with the wisdom of hindsight looked at it, you would see intimations of it all within the classical structure, that is, intimations of what is common both to natural and revealed religion. The revealed is clearly revealed. We wouldn't know about it unless it had been revealed. A disciple of Justin was Tatian, a Syrian, and he wrote a book called Discourse to the Gentiles, a work sometimes translated as an address to the Greeks. The Christians, whom he called barbarians, I mean, from one point of view, the Christians were barbarians because they had not been introduced to classical learning, had been endowed by revelation with a worldview immediately accessible to all and vastly superior to the philosophical conclusions of the Greeks. He goes on, Justin Martyr would not, but his disciple Tatian condemned Greek philosophy, asserting that all that is good in Greek thought was borrowed. Another early thinker that we might pay some attention to was Athenagoras, who died in the year 180. And he saw both problems and conclusions as common to philosophers and Christians. He's not interested in Greek philosophy for its own sake. He doesn't condemn it, as did Tatian, but he uses it in an apologetic fashion. The vague intimations of monotheism in Greek thought do not compare with the clear doctrines which we find in the teachings of Christ. The Christians, with their faith in the Word of God, have a superior vantage point than even the best of the Greco-Roman philosophers. He talks about some of the problems that the Christian is immediately confronted with if challenged by the pagan philosophers, the general resurrection of the body. And he offers what he regards as proof for that. I don't know whether we have proof of that or not. But he talks about the end of mankind, and he goes on, it's proper that the soul be rewarded or punished for deeds, good and bad, that were performed in this life when the soul was united with the body. So he is trying to rationally demonstrate the reasonableness, if not the fact, of certain truths proposed in the Christian faith. 
There are others such as Theophilus of Antioch, the sixth bishop of Antioch, attempts to define accurately the notion of creation. And he has an opponent, a Greek, whom he calls an idolater and scorner of Christians. And against Plato's conception of a demiurge, he is presenting God as not a maker, but a creator. God is, in some sense, unnameable and indescribable, but we can say, nevertheless, many things about him. He doesn't develop a concept of analogy, but we see the intimations of a need to work out a theory of how we talk about God. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.